0: On the Netflix show House of Cards, there's a plot line where fictional U.S. President Frank Underwood announces a plan to make sure every American has a job. Today, that platform is no longer looking like fiction. A group of serious economists wants to spend hundreds of billions of dollars a year to create 15 million jobs, and the plan is picking up momentum at least three potential Democratic candidates for president support a job guarantee. So, would this potential policy give more Americans a better quality of life? Can America even afford it? Or is this just the latest political fad? Welcome to Benchmark. I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington.
1: And I'm Daniel Moss, economics writer and editor at Bloomberg Opinion in New York.
0: This week on Benchmark, we're talking about this job guarantee proposal. The economists behind it say it would create jobs for 15 million workers paying $15 per hour. That's well above the minimum wage in most parts of the country and what many employees in the private sector are making. And it would also create an additional 4.2 million jobs in the private sector, along with generous health benefits. But some people have been criticizing the plan and say it's not so feasible. Let's talk about it with one of the principal authors of this proposal. L. Randall Ray is a professor of economics at Bard College in New York State and a senior scholar at the Levy Economics Institute there. Randy, thanks so much for joining us on Benchmark.
2: Hi, thanks for letting me come on.
0: So, Randy, why now for this job guarantee proposal?
2: Well, we've been working on this for 25 years or so. But there now is an opening, an opportunity to get this out to the public and out of academics. So that's that's why. What's the opportunity? Well, it seems that a, a, a number of people within politics, but also at uh, think tanks, are starting to realize that even after a decade of recovery, and even after it appears we have reached something that many economists, including people at the Fed, wanna call full employment, we know that there are millions upon millions of people left behind. And so there's, a, I think, a very widespread recognition that we need to do something.
0: Is there any parallel for this? I mean, has this been tried anywhere before?
2: Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, many times. Um, Now, what we are promoting, and there are several other proposals that are somewhat similar to ours, is a universal job guarantee across the whole country. Usually what has been tried would be smaller programs, maybe targeted programs, let's say to heads of households uh, with poor families, or they have been time limited, say in the depths of a deep recession or depression, including the United States. We had the New Deal jobs programs. So on um, either more limited or smaller scale, yes, they've been tried many times all over the world. In fact, I would go further than that. I would say that any country that has experienced sustained, true, full employment has had at least one of these programs in operation, and in many cases they've had many different variations of a job guarantee in place.
0: Randy, you write on the Levy website that the generous wage and benefit package would become standard across the country as all private and government sector employers would need to match it to retain workers, and we're talking about pretty generous health benefits here and so on. Is this also another way to uh, produce a kind of universal health care system for uh, the American public?
2: Yeah, it's, that's a minimum wage and benefit package. My professor was Hyman Minsky, who's very well known for the financial instability hypothesis and the so-called Minsky moment that we went through in 2007. But I remember him in the classroom always asking the students, hey, what's the minimum wage now in the United States? And so of course some bright student who was awake would say, Oh, it's two twenty five an hour. Say, no it's not. It's zero. If you can't get a job, your wage is zero. You can't have an effective minimum wage unless there is a job available for everybody who wants to work. So this would set the a universal minimum wage that anyone who wanted to work would be able to receive. In the same way, whatever benefits this program provides will become the national minimum package of
1: benefits. I can imagine the siren call on, say, Fox News, giveaway for everyone, welfare state, we can't afford it. How do you combat that idea?
2: Well. We have gotten used to the idea of minimum wages. (laughs) We've had minimum wages in place for a very long time. And what the minimum wage does is it sets the minimum that uh, you can legally employ somebody at. Uh, I think that that is widely accepted. I I won't try to argue that 100% of uh, all economists support the notion, but by far the vast majority do. The idea is that that is a proper role for the government to set a minimum standard with regard to wages, but we also set many other minimum standards in the way that you can treat your workers. And uh, we even set standards on the number of hours per day and per week and so on. So I think that is very legitimate. So we are moving toward provision of time off when you have a new baby vacation time now in the the united states is way way behind in comparison with any other rich developed capitalist country in the world we uh we don't give we don't mandate paid vacation time we don't mandate paid time off for new parents virtually every other country in the world with a at least a moderate living standard, already provides those things. So these are widely accepted among all of our comparison countries. So there's, there's nothing unusual about it. This is not extreme at all.
0: Now, we just need to address how the country would pay for this. Uh, you talk about proposing that Congress would appropriate funds for it without new taxes. But let's just take a step back for a second. You're also the author of a number of books, including Understanding Modern Money, The Key to Full Employment and Price Stability. So what is modern money theory and how does it relate to this proposal?
2: Well, there are several aspects to modern money theory. One of the things that we've done also for about 25 years is study the way that the government really spends and um, I think that virtually no academics really understood uh, the processes that we go through anytime the government uh, makes a payment. We completely understand that and we have tried to get these ideas out in a variety of forms including academic papers but also with more simple explanations for the average public. So, if I wanted to say it very simply, the way that the government spends today is through keystrokes—that is, credits to bank accounts. Alan Greenspan said exactly the same thing. Uh, he said we can't run out of money. Uh, all we do is we create it as we spend. Bernanke said the same thing, both on 60 Minutes and before Congress when he was asked, where on earth did the Fed get those trillions of dollars that it used to bail out the financial system? And he said, well, we have this new device, it's called a computer, and all we do is keystroke entries into balance sheets. You know, that, that is the way that the government spends. So how are we going to pay for it? We're going to pay for it in exactly the same way that we pay for all other federal government spending, which is keystrokes. These are uh, sort of directed by the Treasury after the allocation has been budgeted by Congress. The Treasury directs the Federal Reserve Bank to make the payments for uh, the Treasury. And the way that the Fed does that is by crediting bank reserves at private banks. And then those private banks credit the accounts of the recipients of government spending. That is how the government spends. So how are we going to pay for it? the same way we pay for all other government spending.
0: But doesn't this mean that the bond market will provide an ultimate check? The government does have to borrow this money. It would have to borrow it. We're already seeing interest rates go up in the first few months of 2018 uh, because of the Republicans' tax cut plan and some new government spending. Isn't this just going to push it up so high that it'll become more difficult to pay back the money in the long run?
2: Well, the the real reason the rates are going up is because the Fed has decided that it's time to raise rates, and they've been increasing the overnight rate uh, target and using that to try to push up longer-term rates. So I think that this is a matter of policy. Will the Fed continue to raise rates? Uh, it might. At some point, it will decide to lower rates, and then the rates will go down. If the Fed reacted to this program worrying that maybe it would cause inflation, then the Fed might push rates up, but this is a policy decision. And uh, you haven't mentioned it yet, but but we have run all of the, uh, the program's features through a model that's used by uh, economists all over the country. Uh, they've been using it since the early 70s. It has a very good track record. And the the boost to inflation is very, very tiny. And uh, we do run simulations with the Fed reacting <clears throat> against the um, inflation. And uh, it has a very insignificant effect on the outcome of the simulations.
0: So, Randy, ultimately, how realistic do you think this is going to be? Don't you think you'll need a strong Democratic Congress or control of the White House to make this happen?
2: Of course, I'm not a political scientist. I'm an economist, and I do the the best that I can do to put the economics out there and then see how far the politicians can take it. I think it's very apparent that this idea has captured the imagination, not only of a number of Democrats who are likely candidates in the next election, but among the public at large, there have been polls that find that this is the most popular program that has ever been polled with support all over the country across the political spectrum. So I don't think it's going to die out. Do I think that a bill will go through before the next presidential election? Uh, probably not, but it's still worthwhile to get the ideas out there.
0: All right. Well, it's certainly sparking debate in several corners of the economics profession, and we're glad that you were able to come on and uh, explain it to us. So, uh, Randy Ray, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So we just heard from Randy Ray that this plan isn't going to become law of the land right away. Probably has a long way to go and is going to engender some more debate. Uh, But for some more analysis, let's go to Ernie Tedeschi. Ernie is a policy economist and head of fiscal analysis in Washington at Evercore ISI, an investment research firm. Before that, he was a senior advisor and economist at the Treasury Department during the Obama administration. Ernie, thanks so much for coming on Benchmark.
1: Thanks for having me on, guys.
0: So, Ernie, Is this the best way to get to full employment?
1: So I think the short answer is we don't know. Um, There is limited experience with job guarantees around the world. India has a uh, sort of a similar scheme to a jobs guarantee. Argentina had one in the 2000s, and there have been limited trial runs in specific geographies and urban areas. The most prominent one being in New York City, where they had a uh, a workfare program where they required you to work for your local welfare check. That's why I actually like Senator Cory Booker's idea to do a trial run of a jobs guarantee. I think that that would tell us a lot. It would wade through the uncertainty and uh, because so many of the critiques of a jobs guarantee are really just about implementation challenges uh, and the uncertainty about how people would react. You know, that said, I, I, I think that a jobs guarantee is just probably, in my view, too blunt an instrument to do what it wants to do. Um, if we want to smooth macroeconomic cycles, you know, the ups and downs of the economy over time, which is a noble goal and, a, and an ambitious goal, you know, other countries have been able, other advanced countries have been able to do that um, without using a jobs guarantee. Um, for example, if you look at Germany, The United Kingdom, uh, Japan, their labor force participation rates have been rising ever since the Great Recession. Uh, Even though, you know, in in Germany, they had sort of a double dip slowdown uh, over the last couple of years as a result of uh, the Eurozone crisis. And in the UK, they had um, Brexit. They've been able to do it with a sort of more of a potpourri of different policies, things like national health insurance, you know, um, stronger wage controls and wage subsidies, you know, protections particularly for women. I think for paid leave, stronger unemployment insurance and disability programs. Those things, I think, would get us a lot of the sort of you know business cycle benefits of a jobs guarantee, and they would be more universally enjoyed. The other thing I'd say is, you know, if our goal with the jobs guarantee is to eliminate poverty and raise wages, then there are probably cheaper, more cost-effective ways of doing that. There are there are certainly upsides and downsides of having a fifteen dollars minimum wage, uh, which is essential, which is what uh, a lot of jobs guarantee advocates are um, pushing for through a jobs guarantee. But if we think that that's the right way to go, why not just raise the minimum wage to $15 without having this very, very large fiscal cost associated with the program?
0: Well, let's talk about that for for a second. What what do you think would be the fiscal cost of this program? Is it feasible? Would it contribute to bond yields going way up, which would make the program even more expensive to pay back uh, for taxpayers in the long run?
1: I think there's actually, you know, in, in in finance we would call it fat tails. That's just a that's a fancy way of saying that there's there are two risks here, right? There's there's a risk that the program is extremely small and that actually far fewer people participate in it than anticipated. In which case, it wouldn't be that expensive, but it wouldn't help the economy very much. And a lot of the benefits that advocates tout. Uh, probably wouldn't come to pass. The other risk is on the upside, right? That lots and lots of people participate in it um and it ends up being much more expensive. One estimate from Mark Paul, William Darity, Derek Hamilton. So they're co-authors who did a version of this plan for the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities. So they basically start from you know there are 11 million people who are unemployed or underemployed in America. Underemployed meaning that you're not getting all the hours that you want, even though you have a job. And they assume that I believe that they base their the pay in their plan around the idea that workers on a job guarantee should be above poverty for a family of four. So that translates. To $11.83 an hour Um, So they calculate that that's going to cost $600 billion a year Which is roughly on par with the Defense Department But they also say that if for some reason The Jobs Guarantee Program ends up attracting People, anybody who makes under $11.83 an hour now That the cost could swell to possibly over $2 trillion a year That would be $2 trillion right now during an economic recovery, that is, you know, roughly that would be like a fifty percent increase in the size of how much the federal government spends every year. In the middle of a recovery, you know, that's not that's not a counter cyclical move to address a shortcoming in aggregate demand right now. That would be, you know, two trillion extra dollars when the economy is relatively good. Now, that's you know, that's on the high end, and that's that that's sort of an upper end range. But you know, this would be a large program. So politically, does it have to wait for the next recession to be viable? I think it probably does have to wait until the next recession. I I think a jobs guarantee was born out of sort of how deep the 2008 downturn was. And and just the, the, the sheer depth of the 2008 downturn was something that not very many people had even contemplated before 2008. It seemed like a very low risk event. And uh, now I think everybody's worldview is different. And that, by the way, is why, you know, even though I'm cautiously pessimistic on the economics of a jobs guarantee, I think it's asking the right question, right? Which is that, Recessions are very damaging to people. We we are only now within striking distance of recovering from the 2008 recession, when you look at things like employment in America. We, we still haven't even recovered from the 2001 recession, when you look at employment. So business cycles can be extremely damaging to the well-being of people and, and thinking about ideas uh, that could help mitigate those business cycles, make recessions less damaging, are good ideas. They're they're asking the right question. And and just the fact that they're expensive, I don't think we should be dismissive of those ideas just because they're expensive. They aren't trying to be ambitious in what they do. I think the problem here is that we can do a lot of what a jobs guarantee promises to do with more targeted, uh, you know, like a potpourri of more targeted, smaller programs or, you know, programs that are Ambitious things like national health insurance, uh, but that would be more broadly enjoyed.
0: Let me ask this Is it even possible to create a program that would have a large bureaucracy to support, say, the 15 million jobs that the proponents are talking about? I mean, you you, you said this would be a, a cost on par with the Pentagon, which is obviously a massive, massive global apparatus. Is it even feasible to create something new like
1: this? I think it would be extremely difficult logistically, and it would be even more difficult to do well. When you think about the right to have a job and what that entails, I mean, that means that a jobs guarantee would have to come up with jobs that were, number one, counter cyclical, meaning that there were jobs available and needed in the depths of a recession. that they would have to be, you know, and that projects would have to be scaled up or down depending on just how many unemployed people were in in any given community and whether or not people showed up. I mean, remember, the the whole point of a jobs guarantee is to set a sort of safety net below you for when you're unemployed. If you find a job the next day, um, you won't show up to your jobs guarantee job. And the projects that that local communities choose to do that are funded under the jobs guarantee would have to be able to accommodate that it would have to be appropriate across geographies. So, you know, you're talking about the kinds of jobs that would work in. You know, any anywhere from, you know, New York City to Boise, Idaho, to a Native American reservation. And they have to be tailored to low skill workers. So you're going to get unemployed people of all different skill levels. And so you have to choose jobs that they're able to do. And they have to be low capital intensity, because if a recession suddenly strikes, you may not be able to get heavy equipment to your community Things like, you know, if you wanted to do a construction project, you may not be able to get construction equipment to your community very fast. And finally, they just, I mean, they have to have a shared mission that's able to withstand all, you know, the very high inflows and outflows from the program that would inevitably arise from, you know, from 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 people coming in and leaving. That's really hard to do. You know, our experience with, for example, what New York City did with their Workfare program, um, and you would think of all places, you know, New York City has a lot of resources, even during a recession, they would have enough people, I think, of different skill levels where you would expect that they would be able to come up with lots of different jobs. What ended up happening, though, with New York City's Workfare program is that people on Workfare ended up doing mostly menial tasks, low skill tasks, things like cleaning up Central Park, janitorial work, and then in some cases, some low-level clerical work as well. Um, now, are these things valuable? Yes, absolutely. Do they build human capital? Do they, you know, are, are they going to make people more employable in the private sector after, you know, the economy recovers? I'm very skeptical of that.
0: All right. Well, Ernie, that is a lot to contemplate. And when this becomes a topic in the 2020 Democratic presidential primary debates. We'll be glad to have you back. Ernie Tedeschi of Evercore ISI, thank you so much for being with us on Benchmark.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, and podcast destinations such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. You can also check us out on Twitter. Follow me at, at Scott Landman. Dan, you're at Moss underscore ECO. The Levy Institute, where Randy Ray is a scholar, is at at L-E-V-Y-E-C-O-N, and Ernie Tedeschi is at E-R-N-I-E-T-E-D-E-S-C-H-I. Benchmark is produced by Topher Forhez. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.